Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And I say regular, but just recently we've not been quite so regular (laughs) because recently, Scott, you had a medical emergency. Well, yeah, for the first time in years, we were late putting out an episode because I had an unexpected hospital visit and uh, (laughs) kind of threw my editing up. And also, if you can hear that I sound a bit weirder than usual this episode, it's because the hospital visit involved some fairly serious dental surgery. I had an impacted wisdom tooth and five other teeth removed, and it was all done under general anaesthetic. They shoved the tube down my throat, which I'm still recovering from. My face is still fairly badly swollen up. So basically, it's like lots of things that are making speaking very fucking difficult at the moment. So, um, yeah... <laughs> This is what happens when you try to snog Aboth. You know it's not a good idea. (laughs) Actually, Matt, would you say, like, Scott's face looks a bit, like, waxy and unmoving? (laughs) Yeah, now you mention it. Yeah, and the hands are just, like, like they're stuck. Oh, my God, wait. Well, I'm spoilers, spoilers. This is, uh, yes, this is uh, The Whisper in Darkness, part five we're going to be looking at today. But we do have a few bits of other news for you. If you're not on board already, then this is your last chance to get a copy of The Blasphemous Tome, issue six, the fanzine that we put out for all our Patreon backers. The cutoff point is the end of December 2020. And this tome does include a brand new full Call of Cthulhu scenario from our very own Paul Fricker called Of This Men Shall Know Nothing. Set during World War II and, yeah, some fairly nasty stuff happening in a farmhouse. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope people enjoy it. A wonderful illustration of a cow as well on the opening spread for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some great stuff from John Sumro. And Scott, you've been on another show as well, I believe, pretending to be people. Yes, I'm halfway through recording my scenario from Nameless Horrors, Bleak Prospect, with pretending to be people at the moment. It's all been knocked back a bit again by this dental surgery, but the first half of it's all in the can. I think they're going to be releasing it fairly soon. So, considering we're recording this about a month in advance, I hope by the time this goes out, that'll be out. And if so, I'll link to it from the show notes. But yeah, it's been an absolute blast recording with them. It's been fucked up in all the right ways. <laughs> and you've also been on podcasts as well, haven't you, Matt? Yes. Yeah, I got invited back by a good friend of mine, Ian Wilson, for his podcast, Roll to Save. So we've been having a chat about new games in 2020, both new games to the wider world that have been published in the year, but also new games that we've played for ourselves for the first time. By the time this episode goes out, that should also be out in the wild then. Nice. And Paul, you were not on a podcast, but you were on a virtual panel at Grogmeet 2020, which was all online this year. How did all that go? Yes, Grogmeet-ish. <laughs> Usually takes place in Manchester, but this time Dirk had it taking place in the virtual realm. And myself with Gaz from What Would the Smart Party Do? And Dirk, we answered questions from the audience, a theme that our listeners may recognise. <laughs> 
which is something we're going to be doing on an upcoming show of ours for our 200th anniversary. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was nice seeing everybody and, and having a chat and answering some miscellaneous questions. And also, I think by the time this goes out, I'll have joined those guys again for a, a panel at Dragon Meet, another oh, wow. virtual convention. So are these panels getting recorded? Are they available online? Yeah, so you can find them on the Grognard Files podcast. And speaking of virtual conventions, our lovely listeners have once again decided to organise a convention in our name. You may remember 2020's convention was known as JaxCon. In 2021, however, it is renaming to A Weekend with Good Friends. The convention will take place between the 14th and the 17th of January 2021. If you are interested in submitting a game to run at the convention, you need to do so by the 6th of January. There will be a link in the show notes that gives you all the information that you need in order to join in. And once again, the convention is taking place entirely on our Discord server. And again, there will be a link to that from the show notes. And so on to our main topic, The Whisperer in Darkness, Part 5. Well, we've reached the final chapter now of The Whisperer in Darkness. Horrible secrets are beginning to come out of the Akeley farmhouse. Wilmarth is deep in trouble. And we're going to see a resolution. And as well as covering this final chapter, we're also going to spend a bit of time talking about some of the adaptations and other media that The Whisper in Darkness has inspired over the years. Yes, as we rejoin our hero, if we can call him that, <laughs> Wilmarth does not have a very good night's sleep. He's there in the old farmhouse, with, well, apparently with Akeley, and he's up in his room, but he's not sleeping well. Sounds like me most nights. Do not ask me how long my unexpected lapse into slumber lasted, or how much of what ensued was sheer dream. If I tell you that I awakened at a certain time and heard and saw certain things, you will merely answer that I did not wake then, and that everything was a dream until the moment when I rushed out of the house, stumbled to the shed where I had seen the old ford, and seized the ancient vehicle for a mad, aimless race over the haunted hills. I'd like his definition of the word ancient there, because the Ford hadn't been in production that long when Howie was writing this. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know. The Model T's came out in the 1900s, I think. Yeah, and when was he writing this? And this was 1930. So 30 years is ancient, is it? Pretty old for a car, I guess. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Hell, my Mondeo could have lasted longer than that. Yeah, that was ancient, Matt. I, I rode in it a few times. Hey, that baby could fly if I went over a humpback bridge fast enough. <laughs> I had to have the suspension replaced a couple of times, but it flew. In your hands, every car is chitty chitty bang bang. <laughs> Looking back at what he is about to relate, Wilmarth allows that we might think that it was all an elaborate prank. Yeah, that's right. Sure enough, when he returned with the sheriff the following day, there was no trace of Akeley beyond his dressing gown, yellow scarf, and foot bandages. Shockingly, all the evidence Wilmarth had brought with him was now missing. What kind of asthma attack involves wearing foot bandages? 
I don't know. I don't have asthma, so maybe I'm missing something obvious here. But when I think asthma, I don't normally think foot bandages. If it was hand bandages, I could understand it, because if there was a bit of a Yagolanak thing going here, his mouth and his hands, you have to cover them up as well. But in this case, I mean, it's obviously covering up pincers, but it's just the fact that <laughs> Wilmarth is taking it in his stride that Ickley's having an asthma attack, of course he's bandaged his feet. He's ignored all the other red flags of this being an obvious trap, so <laughs> at least he's keeping to character. <laughs> in the week that followed, Wilmarth asked around the area and found evidence of the events that Ickley had recounted in his letters, such as the cutting of his telephone wires and his purchases of dogs, ammunition and strange chemicals. Some of the locals had seen his photographs and heard his stories, connecting them with local folklore. I imagine half the time that he was out there asking questions was just talking to the Ken loner, going, and do you know what he did next? <laughs> I particularly note Lovecraft's turn of phrase when he talks about Wilmarth's experience of talking to the locals. Lovecraft says, solid citizens believed that Akeley was mad, whereas the lowlier country folk, sustain his statements in every detail. Those lowly country folk. Not classes yeah. at all, is it? With their strange <laughs> ways. Oh, Howie. Anyway, since returning home, Wilmarth has learnt of the discovery of Pluto, which has made him very unhappy indeed. He tries in vain to convince himself that these demoniac creatures are not gradually leading up to some new policy hurtful to the earth and its normal inhabitants. But Wilmarth realises he's getting ahead of himself. He recounts how that night in the Akeley farmhouse, he awoke to conversation downstairs. The participants were two of the buzzing voices he now associated with the outside beings, the metallic, lifeless voice of the brain in a cylinder, someone with a rustic local accent, and the cultured tones of noise. Now, one thing that just occurred to me, unless I'm missing anything here... Wilmarth makes a, a reference to he hopes that this isn't presaging some great invasion or some sinister movement upon Earth, but we never mm. really get any indication of this story of what the Migo are up to in the larger view. I mean, they've got a mining colony, they're messing around with some locals, they're collecting brains, but beyond that, we don't really know what they're up to. No. No. It could be something as simple as the fact that, yes, there are minerals that they need that are here on Earth, and they're just collecting those. Which, as far as big, sinister alien conspiracies, is a pretty mundane one. Yeah, we certainly get an indication of that, but as you say, presumably there's more to it. A lot of it is left up to our own imaginations, I think. And along those lines, I mean, obviously the Migo do some pretty horrible things in this story but i guess we don't necessarily see any indication that they're malevolent towards humanity in the large scale that they seem to have been coexisting and living their own private lives for hundreds of years according to folklore mm. this isn't really a kind of war of the world situation or anything like that oh not at all it's all very low-key yeah that's got to paint them in a bit more of a kinder light really well i don't know about kinder but certainly neutral hmm. that i mean, compared to some of the things that human beings do when invading other countries going after resources what the migo have been doing here is really quite mild mm -hmm. 
Wilmarth had trouble picking out the details of what they were saying. The room was filled with other sounds, as if people with loose, splintery wooden shoes were shambling and rattling about on the polished floor. Eldritch clog dances. Possibly so. The substance of what he had heard as he lay rigid upon that strange upstairs bed in the haunted farmhouse amongst the demoniac hills lay there fully dressed with a revolver clenched in his right hand and a pocket flashlight gripped in his left. Now, isn't that pretty much the perfect picture of an investigator? (laughs) Go to bed with your gun in your hand. And they are certainly arguing amongst themselves to some degree, discussing perhaps what Wilmarth's fate should be. And certainly talking about potentially destroying the evidence and and beyond that it is fairly fragmentary. This is a great scene that you'd find in a pulp Cthulhu scenario. There's going to be a two mego brain case and a cultist sit round a table and argue it out. You wouldn't find that in a normal <laughs> game of Call of Cthulhu, at least not that I've encountered anyway so far. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the setup for a joke. Two mego a brain case senator <laughs> and a cultist walk into a bar. The bar had it coming. He hears the vehicle driving away, doesn't he? And receding into the distance. And I guess it kind of goes quiet, but you can hear some snoring as well. And he also hears this mysterious flapping sound, which makes it sound like the Miko have flown off as well. Right, yes, of course. Wilmarth now worries Aclea's been coerced into luring him to the farmhouse. Could this explain the difference in his final letter, that one that was typewritten? Or might he be... A prisoner here, needing Wilmarth's help to escape. So hearing the snoring from downstairs, Wilmarth creeps down, expecting to find Akeley sleeping in his armchair. Akeley had mentioned earlier that he might have to do this because he's not very mobile at the moment. Instead, he finds Noyce asleep on the living room couch. Nothing wrong with that. Bunking on a sofa. Sneaking into Akeley's office, Wilmarth spies a brain cylinder sitting on a table. This, Wilmarth realises, is the one with Akeley's name on it. Yeah, the one he was just told to ignore a little while back, yeah. He wonders for a moment about hooking it up to the speech device, but opts not to. A decision he now regrets. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) If it was me in that position, I'd plug that sucker right in right there and then. Why? Why does he wait? (laughs) But he knows noise is there, like sleeping and he's kind of freaked out at this point and also he sees something else now doesn't he but focusing on this idea of whether or not he should have plugged the brain case cylinder in and had a conversation with Akeley do you think that would have been anticlimactic this was one of the things that Lovecraft was convinced by his writer friends to change in the story that apparently there was originally a scene where Wilmarth did speak to Akeley in the brain cylinder Mm-hmm. And they felt that it it undermined the power of the ending. It proved a bit anticlimactic. Which is strange, because admittedly jumping ahead a little bit to our next section. Mm-hmm. That section in the HPLHS dramatisation of mm-hmm. The Whisper in Darkness was actually one of my favourite scenes. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's weird that it would be changed in the original story. But also, I think this is the, highlights the difference between written fiction and gaming, doesn't it? When yeah. you're the protagonist in a game you would say oh okay i'll run over and plug that thing in and i'm going to talk to him whereas when you're reading it you can't do that but you read it and you think 
oh, come on, plug the damn thing in. Why aren't you doing that? And it kind of creates this tension between you and the characters in the book. It's just like in every horror story when, oh, I'll just go down in the cellar on my own in the dark. And you're like, no, don't go down there. But, but you know, they do. And, you, and you're kind of, there's this struggle between you and the character in the fiction, isn't there? And I think mm. that's, that's part of the dynamic that creates the, the tension in these stories. But it's a very different thing when you're the player character, when you're actually in their shoes. That's a totally different method of telling the story, I think. Uh, again, thinking yeah. of jumping forward again very, very slightly, but on a tangent. I listened to the BBC audio drama, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, oh, yes. that preceded Whisper in Darkness that we'll talk about later. There was a line that just made me burst out laughing when I was listening to it, which is, I've seen this horror film, I'm not going down into that, and then the phone drops, and it dunk, 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 and then just this pause, and... <laughs> shit <laughs> yeah we know that this isn't gonna go well for you but you still need to go and retrieve your phone <laughs> but it does strike me that uh, i mean this is sort of harking back to some of the stuff we talked about in previous episodes but if you had a perfectly rational character in a horror film or a horror story who did everything unencumbered by emotion or fear or bad decisions then a it would be a pretty fucking boring thing to watch or read. I would counter that with your next, because there's the protagonist in that is the perfect <laughs> kind of uh, foil for the home invasion there, and I really rooted for her. But also, B, it would be pretty unrealistic, because the point is that people in situations like that are making bad decisions. People make bad decisions when they're frightened. People make bad decisions when they're under pressure. People make bad decisions when they're confronted by the unknown. And to have this emotionless robot going through it all, going, no, I will not do the bad thing because that would be bad, I think would actually break a story for me far more than someone running around doing something stupid. So the moral of the story is read these stories, play games, and then when you are put in these circumstances, you can be the person that gets out alive because you can react completely stone-faced to the whole thing. <laughs> Looking over to Akeley's armchair, Wilmarth only sees the dressing gown, scarf, and bandages draped over it. Wilmarth also notes that the queer odour and sense of vibration are no longer in the room. Yeah, I like that term, the sense of vibration. Mm. That that kind of struck me when I read it again, that when he gets close to the armchair, it kind of feels different, you know, because there are things that we sort of pick up that we don't maybe consciously register. Obviously, we're very conscious of what we see and what we hear, but we're not so conscious of maybe a background hum or a, a, just a weird sensation or mm. a smell or things like that. So it's kind of good to try and somehow incorporate those almost intangibles into your descriptions. You know, it feels different. Well, how does it feel different? Well, you know, it's just a, there was a kind of an electricity in the air before that you didn't really notice or there was a felt like static or, you know, some sort of weird things. When they're gone, then you notice. Yeah. The armchair has those magic fingers inside and you just need to put another quarter <laughs> into it to make it judder yeah i love putting stuff like that into my narrative as i'm gming games and i try to rush into my scenarios as well i mean for example blackwater creek is full of stuff like that where it's just these sort of little hints of wrongness that are way beyond just the things you see that just i hope you know over time gradually build up this growing sense of what the fuck I think that sense of vibration, like you say, Paul, is just an absolutely perfect example of that. And then, examining the chair, Wilmarth notices something else. Something that makes him issue a muffled shriek. He then flees. 
that morbidity-choked farmhouse beneath the black-wooded crest of a haunted mountain, that focus of transcosmic horror amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral rustic land. That's a very long way to say he ran the fuck out of there. <laughs> he sure did. But I think that sentence there... That focus of transcosmic horror amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral rustic land is Lovecraft in a nutshell, isn't it? Mm, yeah, sums it up. I think that's one of my favourite sentences that he wrote. Wilmarth wraps up his narrative by finally recounting what it was that he saw in Akeley's study. The three things were damnably clever constructions of their kind and were furnished with ingenious metallic clamps to attach them to organic developments, of which I dare not form any conjecture. I hope, devoutly hope, that they were the waxen products of a master artist, despite what my inmost fears tell me. Great God, that whisperer in darkness with its morbid odour and vibrations... Sorcerer, emissary, changeling, outsider, that hideous, repressed buzzing, and all the time in that fresh, shiny cylinder on the shelf. Poor devil. Prodigious surgical, biological, chemical and mechanical skill. For the things in that chair, perfect to the last subtle detail of microscopic resemblance or identity, were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Akeley. And on that bombshell. And there we end it, yeah. So, do you think that kind of ending would work in the game? A bit anticlimactic. I think most players would go, okay, well, what, then what? Okay, well, yeah, obviously I'll take the hands in the face and I'll go back to Arkham and examine those and take the brain case cylinders and stuff like that. And Yeah, but he's remembering that. We're looking back, aren't we, after he's fled. I could envisage a game where the player characters are like, burnt down the building and like fled and they're like driving off in the night and then we just have a like a flashback when you ran through the room as you're driving away you suddenly recall what it was you saw in the chair and you kind of describe that and then kind of fade the black so i could kind of imagine that yeah either that or they failed the sanity roll made their idea roll had a bat of madness and just ran off leaving all this stuff behind yeah and then you tell them what they saw at the end maybe mm. yeah i could see that happening if it was me i'd feel a little bit not cheated, but a little bit kind of, mm, okay, it was a bit of a damp squib. Because ultimately it is just run away, then there's nothing to find afterwards. It just seems a bit anticlimactic to me that there's not really much payoff. Well, again, I guess it's like that dynamic I was talking about. Yeah, you, you as the reader kind of want to tell the guy, for goodness sake, go back and get those things. And he does like notify the authorities. He doesn't return, but the sheriff. And he talks about at the end some investigators go back. But earlier on, he talks about the sheriff and deputies or whatever go back. And, you know, they can't find these things. They have like been removed, disappeared. But as you say, Paul, I think there is a fundamental difference between what works in a story and what works in a game. Hmm. And I think fundamentally players in the game want resolution whether that's a good resolution bad resolution or whatever they want all the answers there they want some kind of climax while this works as a narrative climax in a story it doesn't provide that sense of closure in a game that you'd want hmm. i think we're conditioned to expect burn the shack down shoot the bad guys die horribly whatever but just seeing the bad thing and running away, yeah, 
I don't think is going to make many players happy. And now let's take a look at adaptations and derived works based on The Whisperer in Darkness. The Whispering Darkness has spawned a few films. I'd forgotten until I was looking at the Wikipedia entry prior to recording this session that it supposedly inspired one of the segments of the French-American horror film from the 90s, Necronomicon, which I haven't seen since it first came out. That's the one that stars Jeffrey Combs as Lovecraft and it's a portmanteau film with, with three of his stories. And... I remember nothing about the Whisperer segment in there, but when I read the brief synopsis of it, it bears no resemblance to the story whatsoever. It seems to be more to do with a supposed serial killer and bat monsters that eat brains and stuff like that, and it's a loose adaptation at best. From memory, it follows the police grunt that goes in trying to track down said killer and then finds some very badly CGI bat things flopping around in a cave. She goes through some very weird, almost like hallucinogenic, sequences i think she loses some limbs in one of them so there's a bit of call back to some of the surgical procedures that the migo might do right. but otherwise it's nothing to do with the story <laughs> in the slightest even the migo don't look like migo then there's a 2007 feature film by matt hundley which is shot on black and white it's relatively low budget it is up there on youtube and we can put a link to it in the show notes it is kind of feature film length yeah i've not watched it all i've kind of dipped in a few bits but i'd kind of be interested to give it a go because it you know looks quite appealing yeah i mean it is very very low budget Mm. for example there's a scene that's set in arkham sanitarium uh, near the beginning which looks like it was just shot in someone's university dorm Mm. the corridor is very obviously the corridor of an office or a dorm or an apartment building of some kind and not a mental hospital and the acting from the bits that I dipped into, I did the same as you, Paul, I skimmed through it, seemed fairly ropey. On the other hand, mm. it does look like it is a comparatively faithful adaptation. And it does what the HPLHS production, which we'll talk about in a moment, does, which is it sort of replaces the correspondence with people talking to each other, which makes for a more dynamic film. But apart from that, it seems to follow pretty much the shape of Lovecraft's story. But as you mentioned, the the 2011 film from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, directed by Sean Branny, we're not going to find a, I was going to say, a better adaptation, but it does take quite a lot of liberties with the Mm. story. It kind of tells the story, but it adds quite a lot in. I think if it just told the story, it would be half the length, as it is. The duration of the film is over an hour and a half. I mean, I don't know what you guys made of it. I found it was, it was enjoyable, but... To be honest, you know, I love Andrew and Sean. They're they're great guys and they do fantastic stuff. For my money, I'd have been happy for them to tell just more the straight story. In fact, there's there's like a couple of trailers that are three minutes long and the first one of those kind of hooks out all the bits I like and I get shivers watching that. Mm. Whereas when it's expanded into a whole film, it feels a bit diluted to me and some of the things they add in... They're fun, but I don't really buy into them as much as part of the story. Is that three-minute trailer you mentioned, the one with uh, listening to the wax cylinder? And then it ends with that kind of shape at the window. I think that's just the teaser you're on about. I remember that trailer, and that was really enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, the film's about an hour and three quarters, and 
the last half hour to 40 minutes of it is all stuff that's not in the story. They basically take it from the ending of Lovecraft's story and then add this fairly extensive coda. The first time I saw it, what, nine years ago, whenever it was it came out, I wasn't convinced by that. I found it a bit pulpy for my tastes or a bit too action-orientated with the biplane and stuff like that. I watched it again last night and I enjoyed it a lot more this time round. Maybe because I had some idea of what was coming. Mm. But it felt a lot less pulpy this time round than I was expecting. There was a, a sense of tension, a sense of building stakes, and really quite a dark ending to it. Mm. And I don't know, that, that worked for me, like I say, a lot better the second time round when I was expecting it. I watched the film before I'd read the story, and I think I do vaguely remember thinking wow this has got a bit more action and pulp in it than <laughs> your, your average lovecraft story but then when it got to the end uh, i won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it but the end is good thinking mm. oh yeah that's more of a kind of downbeat lovecraftian ending yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> that's more what i was expecting there <laughs> But as I mentioned before, they do move away from the correspondence aspect of the story. They have Akeley's son turn up at the Miskatonic University to talk to Wilmarth, acting as his father's agent. And they have conversations between Wilmarth and his various colleagues. They even have Andrew Lehman turn up playing Charles Ford, which I'd forgotten until I watched it again, which was fantastic. And, yeah, I think that was a really good decision because... It turns it into, well, a film, which two guys exchanging correspondence really wouldn't be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it'd be riveting watching them write letters for so long and then take them to the post office and then read another letter when it comes back. God. <laughs> but this is not their only adaptation of Whisper in Darkness, of course. They've also done the Dark Audio Radio Theatre production of it. Dark Adventure Radio. Yeah. Ah, Dark Adventure Radio Theatre, which I've not actually heard. I must no. give that a listen. I imagine that probably stays closer to the story. Have you guys heard that? Not yet, no. I've got a whole load of their Dark Adventure Radio Theatre stuff on my list to pick up when we next go to Necronomicon because they provide all the physical handouts and other paraphernalia mm. with the physical product if you buy it rather than download the MP3. I'm holding out so I can get my grubby mitts on the physical stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I've got one or two of theirs, and the amount of stuff they cram into like a dual CD case oh, is incredible. You're never going to get it all back <laughs> in. It's fantastic. As always, you know, I can't recommend their stuff highly enough. It's fantastic. If you've not seen the film, do seek it out. Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if the Dark Adventure Radio Theatre did deviate significantly from the, the story, because the other adaptations that I've heard of Lovecraft stories that they've done have deviated significantly because... Mm fundamentally they are doing them as audio dramas and what works in one medium doesn't work in another i think is quite right that they chop and change things around and and so on because it makes for a much more interesting listening experience and then there's also the lovecraft investigations podcast primarily put out on the bbc there's three seasons and the latest season is is just being released well right now probably finished being released by the time this comes out they did it all in one go oh okay and the second season is The Whisper in Darkness. Sort of. Yeah, in name only. Yeah, in a different interpretation of Whisper in Darkness, bringing it up to the modern day and, you know, using elements of it. But it's set in England 
and ties in with, well, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but like number stations, UFOs, all sorts of weird cults and like people taking drugs and stuff in the 80s. And and it's a really good production, right? Mm. I mean, I think the production of this is outstanding. Yeah. And genuinely creepy. I mean, I, I find audio productions, when they're creepy, they can be really creepy. I did feel a little cheated when listening to that. Because one of our listeners over on the Discord channel mentioned that the writer who produced these... Julian Simpson. That's his name. Yeah, I couldn't think of it off the top of my head. A couple of years ago also did a three-episode series called Mythos, which uh, mm. they aired on BBC Radio 4 as well. Essentially, it takes a whole load of elements from that story and then just retells them. So it's almost, oh, I got this production that I did a few years ago. I want to do it again, so I'm going to repackage it and sell it as a Lovecraft story. And when that kind of clicked in my head, I felt a little pissed off, actually, because there was, it was hmm. Whisper in Darkness in almost all but name with just a couple of elements from the story thrown in. They had more in common with the Mythos series than it did with the Lovecraft story. Well, I have no problem with that whatsoever, because, again, it's a question of adapting things to different formats. And also, I really like the fact that with the Lovecraft investigation, Simpson has taken elements out of the story. So, I mean, the case of Charles Dexter Ward doesn't really bear that much resemblance to the story. It uses the character of Charles Dexter Ward, but what's going on behind the scenes is very different same thing with the shadow of rinsmith oh very very much so <laughs> yeah so it's not like the whisper in darkness is alone in that but i really like it when writers do stuff like that because well we have the original story if i just want to listen to someone read the story out i can just listen to the hplhs reading of it the fact that simpson has taken all these elements reinvented them woven them into a new sort of meta narrative brought in other elements from history and mythology and and mm. created something new is far more exciting than just the same story Again. I don't know. Maybe I've got a little bit of a chip on my shoulder having listened to 25 minutes of static that gave me a headache that lasted for the best part <laughs> of the day. I can't believe you listened to all of that, Matt. <laughs> yeah. I, I managed to pick out parts of that message, a little bit right. in the beginning, middle and end, but I was kind of happy with myself for doing that. But the amount of paracetamol I got through to, to do that, um, <laughs> no. Yeah, I just listened to 30 seconds of that episode. That was enough. Yeah, I kind of skipped through it and thought, what the fuck? Are they actually going to do... Oh, they are going to do this for half an hour. Okay. <laughs> Scott, I think you've read some of the sequels or sequels or other stories that kind of build on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Sure. There's one of them I'm not sure if I may well have read. I don't know if you've read any of these, Matt. No. There are any number of stories that have used the Mego and Rift on the Whispering Darkness, but there's a few that I'll pick out. There's uh, Fritz Leiber's To Arkham and the Stars, which I reread this afternoon just prior to recording, so it's fairly fresh in my mind. And that is a delightful story. So it's an unnamed narrator who may be Leiber himself going off to Miskatonic University in the mid 60s and encountering all these old men, all these emeritus professors who were the protagonists of Lovecraft stories and just talking to them about the old days and how all of this still impacts on the present and the different connections between their various adventures and how all of this was chronicled by the young man of Providence and yeah, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful story. And his main contact at the university is the now septuagenarian Wilmarth, who he describes as being unpleasantly erudite. 
which I thought was fantastic, and how there's something now very off-putting about his manner, that he's got this sort of sardonic chuckle and always seems to know more about what's going on than everyone else, and the narrator is just genuinely creeped out by being in Wilmar's company. And there's little bits in there about how long after the events of uh, The Whisper in Darkness, Wilmarth has kept in contact with the Migo and has come to the conclusion that actually they're not malevolent, or at least not completely malevolent. It sort of then raises the question of whether we can trust that. But there's... The narrator makes the point and asks the question of Wilmarth, all the things that you wrote about, in, or at least that were chronicled by the young man of Providence in your adventures, all happened at almost exactly the same time as the Dunwich Horror. And he asks, "Is was there any connection? And Wilmarth says, he's a bit reticent at first, but yes. And the grand secret was that the Migo were actually aware of what Wilbur Waitley was doing and a lot of their efforts were marshalling forces to actually try to stop him because they didn't want him to destroy the Earth because they had interests here. So I quite like that little thread. Not one I was expecting. <laughs> but I really do recommend that story. It's, it's quite a short one. It's, I think, only about 16 pages. And it is basically Fritz Leiber as... One of Lovecraft's correspondents is an old friend of his, just revisiting these stories that influenced him so much that were written by this old friend of his, and just playing with them. It's, it's almost fanfic, but of a very loving kind. There was also a story by Richard A. Lupoff in the 1980s called Documents in the Case of Elizabeth Akeley, which I did read donkeys years ago. I meant to dig it out and reread it before this, but I didn't get time. That is much more of a direct sequel to The Whisper in Darkness, digging into the perhaps dark history of the Akeley family and how they aren't perhaps necessarily innocent victims of all this weirdness that was going on. But the one I did finish reading yesterday, which absolutely blew me away, was Caitlin R. Kiernan's Agents of Dreamland. This is a book I've been meaning to read for ages. I, I say book, it's a novella, but it's been published as a standalone book. It's the first part of an ongoing series that she's writing, collectively known as the Tinfall Dossier. The second book is Black Helicopters, and the third part is The Tindalos Asset. And these books are... I guess very Delta Green in some ways. They follow members of various intelligence agencies as they're interacting with the mythos and trying to uncover existential threats against humanity and see whether anything can be done about it. But there is one of the characters in it who has a somewhat strange relationship with time who sort of sees it out of sequence and we know from her experiences that humanity is doomed anyway and that none of the things the characters are doing are going to do more than delay the inevitable but it builds very heavily upon 
the Whispering Darkness, and sort of mixes it in an awful lot with the Heaven's Gate analogue, and has this cult that is involved with Amigo, and really plays up the fungal aspects of them. I don't know whether this is something that the Amigo create or something that they are, but a sort of infectious agent that becomes almost like cordyceps, that becomes a mutagen transforming humanity into something a bit more like them. And it's really quite nightmarish in places. I absolutely love that, and I've started on the second book now, but I'm not that far into it. But, yeah, if you're looking for Delta Green inspiration or Call of Cthulhu inspiration, you could do a lot worse than read these books. Mm. Extremeland's a kind of nickname for Area 51, isn't it? And that is where the protagonist, the, the signalman, is based out of, which is mm. the root of the name. Gotcha, yeah, because they've definitely been connected as we mentioned with the radio drama, that there is this connection between UFOs and Mego that's mm. developed, especially in the gaming aspect for Delta Green. So yeah, having connected with Area 51 seems a bit like a no-brainer, really. Yeah, I think this story is particularly good for gaming because it kind of throws a lot of elements at us. And as you mentioned earlier, Scott, it doesn't really give a strong motivation for the Mego. We don't really see, like, it's not like War of the Worlds where they're going to invade us and we beat them and that's the end of the story. Mm or you know there's a big battle or whatever it's they're bothering some old guy <laughs> in a farmhouse in vermont and he's got some dogs and a gun a shotgun or rifle and he's fending them off it's not exactly alien is it yeah you know these migo they're fought off with a guy yeah albeit a big game rifle and a, a few dogs and he fends them off you know mm -hmm. and they've got some human agents helping them so there seems to be in this story for gaming there seems to be a number of like elements that we can kind of pull out like there's the migo there's the fact they have human agents makes it really appealing for gaming i think because gaming is always easier when you've got some things that are on similar scale to the investigators it's not just like the investigators and cthulhu you know, it's like, mm. how do you put those together? And also, like, the whole Heads in Jars things, the weird science aspect of it. Actually, can I drill down into the Brains and Jars element just a little here? Because I saw a passing reference on Wikipedia about how Lovecraft may have been influenced by an essay called The World, the Flesh and the Devil by a scientist called J.D. Burnell. And this was published in 1929, so just before... Mm. Lovecraft was writing this story. As far as I can tell, this is the origin of the whole idea of brains and jars. The whole thing is looking at the way various scientific developments might shape humanity. In a lot of ways, it's almost like a transhumanist manifesto, but written in the 1920s. Of course, being written in the 1920s, it goes into a lot of things like eugenics as well. But he does talk about how if... A physician or a surgeon or someone who was sort of skilled in anatomy found themselves in a terrible physical accident that they may decide to have their brain removed because, as he says, it is, uh, after all, it is the brain that counts. And he talks about how you'd need to create various input devices just to stop the person going mad, electric or electronic analogues for the various senses to provide sensory input, and perhaps uh, some kind of mechanical stage that involves giving them mechanical hands or artificial hands or a way of interacting with the world. And then it gets into a 
a specific here, which is why I think that there may be something that definitely relates to Lovecraft's vision for the Whisper in Darkness. He says, Instead of the present body structure, we should have the whole framework of some very rigid material, probably not metal, but one of the new fibrous substances. In shape, it might well be a rather short cylinder. Inside the cylinder, and supported very carefully to prevent shock, is the brain with its nerve connections, immersed in a liquid of the nature of cerebral spinal fluid, kept circulating over it at a uniform temperature. The brain and nerve cells are kept supplied with fresh oxygenated blood and drained of the deoxygenated blood through their arteries and veins which connect outside the cylinder to the artificial heart-lung digestive system, an elaborate automatic contrivance. Mm. And that really does seem like the Migo brain cylinders. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether there's any indication in his correspondence Lovecraft read this essay, but, I mean, given his interest in science, it doesn't seem unlikely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it seems quite likely. I mean, certainly the description seems to fit and the period seems to fit. I mean, I'm kind of interested in getting into what we can do with them for gaming as well. Mm. So I think that the brains in cylinders thing, you know, maybe there's the typical, aha, you're all actually brains in cylinders kind of twist. But aside from that, I think they are, they're a great device because you can have people preserved in them to fly through space. You can have them asleep for huge periods of time. And who knows what, who the MIGO might have like abducted hundreds of years ago and they're still in a brain cylinder and they come back to Earth with them and we talk to, I don't know, Shakespeare or somebody, you know? Yeah, you just have a lot of scope for exceeding life expectations as 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 well as all manner of other things. It did strike me a while back, and I can't remember whether I ever wrote this into anything, I probably did at some stage, that you could have some really significant crossover there with that and the dreamlands that when you have all these people going into standby in their brain cylinders they're basically able to project themselves as memories of what they used to be into the dreamlands and so you have this perpetual dreamer just escaping the reality of what they've become by recreating themselves in dreams Mm. or you just plug your brain cylinder into a mech I think I talked about that a bit in the body horror episode where I was postulating some ideas about what the Miko might be doing with those brain cylinders and plugging them into, say, mining machines and stuff like that or giving them basically new prosthetic bodies to be suited Mm. to particular tasks. If I remember right, there is a, maybe not a chapter, it's probably a bit too grand a term for it, but there is definitely an article in the machinations of the Mego eyes only chapter book for delta green that goes through well if you are unlucky enough to be stuck in a brain case here's some of the ways that you can be modified to try and be reintegrated back into society and it talks about having like a a doll set up a mannequin set up in a uh, wheelchair and that you then need to hook it up with x y and z and you know, they're definitely like mannequins and dolls in delta green thinking of their <laughs> take on the king and yellow i also think you know the Mego are interesting because we see in this story they are quite killable mm. and yet equally they're they're pretty scary and very often with mythos monsters they are kind of perhaps killable but you know they're they're, they're really tough whereas these things i kind of think they're not that tough 
And they're still fairly tough in that they take, what is it, minimum damage from firearms. Mm-hmm. Mm. Considering the way they're described in the stories as being really quite ineffectual physically, because we see in the story that they can barely get around on land. They're okay when they're flying, but they don't really walk too well on Earth. And they seem to be physically quite vulnerable, you know, hence the human agents and stuff like that. So, yeah, I wonder whether there might even be scope for downgrading them physically a bit from what they are in Call of Cthulhu and making them more vulnerable that way. Because they're not really there to present a physical threat. They're something weirder than that. They're, I guess, sort of mad scientists. Their technology poses more of a threat than they do physically. Mm. But I did like that idea in Agents of Dreamland about the biological side of them, that... We perhaps gloss over the fact that they are fungi, that they are these things that have evolved to resemble animals in some way, but they are fundamentally vegetable, they are fundamentally fungoid. And that fungi are really quite scary in the way that they can interact with living beings, where you have fungi that can infest humans for example that rarely goes well for the humans and particularly when you've got things that start infecting insects and controlling their behavior changing their behavior as parasites tend to do then yeah bringing those aspects of them in makes them far far scarier i mean you know Mm. why why worry about getting into a punch-up with one when one can just simply perhaps release some spores and start changing the nature of your brain mushrooms in the brain and we get the whole buzzing voice thing what i tend to find is things that have been described in the games i kind of conflate those with things that were in the story now do Mm. we actually get them telepathically like putting their voices and instructions into somebody's head in the story it's implied it doesn't happen directly but there are mentions of how they communicate via telepathy in the gaming that i've seen and certainly in the whisper in darkness podcast there's that implication that not only is it telepathy, but they can actually put instructions into your head and like the buzzing voice you can't keep out and it kind of tells you what to do, which, you know, which is very appealing, I think, as a, as a game device. There certainly is that in the story. So, for example, you have the railway agent who's lost the box with the black stone in it, talking about how there was this person with a buzzing voice and talking to them made him drowsy and he's not sure what happened mm. afterwards. So yeah, if we're yeah. assuming that that was Amigo in disguise and not a human agent who'd learned their ways, then, yeah, that's almost exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I'd figured maybe it was like a dominate spell or something like that. But you're right. Yeah, that could just be the Amigo voice. I'd figured it was probably a human agent at the railway station. But, you know, maybe they have this ability too. You know, we don't know too much about the human agents and quite how that works, do we? So um, it's almost like hypnosis. Maybe. Well, going back to this idea of them being some kind of agents of fungal infection, maybe their human agents are partly infected with the mm. the very essence of the Amigo, and rather than just sort of, oh, yeah, here's a bit of magic you can do to, so you can go off and dominate people on the railway, you know, it's more you've been infested with the very essence of the Amigo, and this gives you certain abilities as well as perhaps detracting from your will and your humanity. Mm. Just don't worry about those button mushrooms sprouting on your shoulder. They'll, they'll go away. <laughs> and they're quite tasty anyway. Mm, I do love be a good mushroom. 
So, Matt, are there any particular examples you've seen in Call of Cthulhu or other RPGs of how the Whisper in Darkness has been reinvented in gaming? I think it's more like what Paul said, that certain aspects or certain elements have been pulled out of the story rather than using the story itself. Um, I couldn't think of or find any references directly to like a game version of the story itself. But I think the prime place where we find how the Mego have been expanded is in what I mentioned previously, Delta Green. They become a key part of the setting especially with the likes of the Greys, which is almost a direct callback to the thing in disguise, this thing that's been put inside a, in inverted commas, grey alien suit that's puppeted by the Amigo. You get the UFO connection there because they're all connected with the Roswell crash. The mining that they're exploiting Earth for, again, very much part of their core plan for Earth. And it very much it spins off that and becomes its own thing, but it uses that as its base. The mining aspect for the Mego also comes in what was originally called the Fungi from Yogoth, but then got renamed to the Day of the Beast. But they only feature in a chapter in that. They're not really part of the whole story, as it were. And then they, they turn up again in a couple of individual one-shots, shorter scenarios. But yeah, thinking about it, there's not that much that's been done with them on a gaming front in terms of scenarios. It's more almost source material that you can draw in and it gives examples of how to use them as an antagonist without actually using them directly. Day of the Beast is such a, I don't know, it, it seems a bit of a disappointing title to me after Fungi from Yogoth. I mean, I want to play that. Fungi from Yogoth. That's a great title. But, you know, <laughs> it's a small thing, but uh, I just love the name. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. We offer a variety of interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening. Well, once again, it is time to offer our thanks. We would like to thank, for a start, you for listening to the podcast. We'd like to thank anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Yeah, we do. And the first of those is a big thanks going out to Ed Stephen. Also, our thanks going out to the very um, alphanumerically spelt, hopefully I'm getting this right, priceless MPB. And thank you very much to Arif Dyer. And thanks to Scott Smith. I don't suppose that's the same Scott Smith who wrote The Ruins, is it? And also thanks out to Maximilian Wayland. And thank you very much to Charles L. Taylor Jr. And thanks to Dylan Masson. And thanks again to Jeremy Hunt. And thank you very much to Mick Barnes. And thanks to Orbital Axolotl. Ah, yes, who some of you may remember was the organiser of the virtual convention last year, JaxCon. This year. Oh yeah, this year. We are in the 18th month of 2020 after all. <sighs> we really are. And thanks also go out to Vermillion. And thank you very much to Charles Griffin. Aha, yes, thanks Charles. I had the pleasure of meeting you at Necronomicon. Uh-huh. And thanks also to Yamamoto. And once again, I'd just like to say, if you are enjoying the podcast please do let other people know. I 
podcasts spread primarily by word of mouth and we would love to get the good word of Jackson Elias out there to other unsuspecting ear holes. And perhaps, you know, like the human agents of the Migo, you can be our agents in spreading the badness out there. Take it in through your spiracles. So you're making it feel like we're spreading spores out there now. Audio spores. I've got one final question, I guess, that, that occurs to me that we didn't actually address in the end was, who was in the armchair? <sighs> was it Akeley? Was it Amigo? Or was it, as some say, Neil Athotep? After rereading the story, well, a number of times now, I am inclined to say that it was Amigo, because you do have that little thing about the buzzing, about the vibration... And that seems to tie in very much with the buzzing voices and so on that we heard earlier. So, yeah, I think ultimately that answers the question. But I like the fact that it's not fully defined, the fact that the answer to that is multiple choice. What do you reckon, Matt? I'll go with Amigo as well, mainly because I love the scene in the HPLHS version so much where you see the thing taking off the hands, <laughs> the feet and the head. Oh. To say anything else would be a disservice because that, that scene rocked. And the performance of Akeley is so great. That, oh, let me whisper it to you. That, that's just <laughs> freaking awesome. That whole scene was so creepy. Uh, the fact yeah. that they did obviously some subtle audio effects just to make his voice sound mm. a little buzzing and alien. And the performance, the actor was fantastic. The way that when he laughed, it sounded like someone imitating human laughter. Yeah. Everything about that was just so deep in the Uncanny Valley. It was a great, great scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I would go along with you guys. I think it was Amigo. I mean, we, like you say, Scott, we get that earlier bit in the story where Lovecraft talks about, or the narrator talks about, Nalathotep may appear to people in the human guise and take on various forms and so on, which kind of seeds the idea that maybe that's Nalathotep at the end and that's how some people have picked up on it. It's more than that in the story. Because he talks about something about Nyarlathotep wearing a waxen mask. Mm. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the waxen mask and so on. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's like literally what we see at the end. But equally, I don't think it's a waxen mask either. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> well, may we wish you all a happy new year, a happy new year in 2021. May it be uh, as full of interest as 2020 but you know maybe a bit better though <laughs> yeah let's let's qualify that a bit yes okay like have an interesting 2021 but please we hope for all of our sakes that it's just a bit less shit <laughs> less disease more fun well until 2021 it's a good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me <laughs> Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm-hmm.